Linda and I left at, at uh, dark 30 this morning. They come down from Bellingham and, and uh, I had asked Samuel to send me, send me the, the order of service and the songs. And so we listened to some of the Getty songs coming down here. It's so good to gather to sing and praise a great God. You've got a great worship team here as well. And, you know, we're to make a joyful noise to the Lord and, and, and all of life is a worship service, certainly, but God asks us to gather together. And it's something about coming together and, and singing together that is, that is so good and so encouraging for us. And uh, sometimes when we sing songs that are familiar to us, we don't really listen to what we sing. We just sing because we know what the next verse is. And so we sing these great anthems and think about the Seahawks and or about the Mariners or whatever. You know how the mind wanders. But again, did you listen to what you sang here? Here's what we sang. Let goods and kindred go. Really? This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. I trust we believe that. The body they may kill. And you know, things are getting more and more hostile in our world towards God's people. But the words that we sang were true and are true and they're triumphant in this increasing uh, hostility in this world and, of course, from this world. But God's kingdom is forever and we are part of his forever family if we're born again this morning. The Apostle Peter wrote that the God of all grace has called us to his eternal glory in Christ. And so we are victors, not just victims of this temporal culture, and we must stand firm in Christ. Peter also wrote, this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. That's our task, that's our focus, that's our holy chore. <laughs> and that word chore is a good good word, it's as we are focused and disciplined, our holy chore, our holy uh, obligation and our delight to praise our great God. So looking at your outline, I I wrote earlier this week, uh, Christians face opposition in this fallen world, whether we know it or not. The Apostle Peter ends his first epistle to a suffering people with a reminder of the spiritual warfare in which they have lived, as well as the antidote to discouragement. And that is, be sober in spirit, be on the alert, resist the devil, and stand firm in the grace of God. Peter identifies our adversary as a devil who seeks to deceive, to distract, and to destroy. But God rules and overrules and uses his ploys to accomplish his purpose. So we're going to find that in 1 Peter chapter 5. We spend most of the time in chapter 5, but I'm going to start with verse 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight under compulsion, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, 
you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Verse 5. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders. And then it says, And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world, And after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pause one more time before our great God. We do come, our Father, our eternal God, and We are so grateful that we can have an audience with you. We're so grateful for your grace that is greater than our sin, that the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ shed on our behalf gives us a place to stand before you, a holy God, not on our merits, but on what he has done. And we're so grateful. Father, give us ears to hear today and hearts to respond to your word and in grateful obedience. Again, keep us from trafficking through unlived truth. Thank you that you know us through and through and you love us anyway. We're so grateful for your grace and mercy. We ask your Holy Spirit to lead and teach us today for your glory, for our good. We come in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Again, we're thankful. Linda and I are thankful to be able to be here and come back here after 40 years. 40 years since I was preaching here in that building over there, that little one we built there. Appreciate Bill Michelson staying in touch all these years. By the way, did you know it was Bill and Kathy's anniversary today? Yeah. I'm not sure they they wanted me to say that, but I'm going to say it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think I started last last time I preached here with the same comment, and that is it, this is the, this is the strangest world that, that I've lived in, at least. Uh, I'll be 77 here in November, and... and you know, the wheels are falling off in many ways. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He's in charge. Absolutely. Still, things are, some weird things are going on in this world. And uh, Peter, though, calls us aliens and strangers, doesn't he? And we are aliens and strangers. We see, should see ourselves as aliens and strangers on the one hand. But Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. Yes, where which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so even as we look at the title here, Standing Firm in Adversity, and I looked at this passage I just read, the first point in our outline here is we must remain aware of spiritual warfare. Chapter 5, verse 8, 1 Peter. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Many of us are familiar with this passage, but we ought not let familiarity breed contempt, where we say, oh, I've heard that before. Oh, I know that. This is just pablum. I know that passage. Well, 
Jesus said, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You know, and what a challenge for us to review these things. And whether we realize it or not, we have an adversary who seeks to distract us, to deceive us, and yes, even destroy us. Devour is the word used. Now, Peter wrote this letter to a suffering church that was scattered. They were scattered because of the persecution by that evil emperor Nero in 64 AD. This was written, we believe, this letter. And both Peter and Paul faced painful and, and ponderous pressures and, and were actually murdered and martyred three years later in 67 AD, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. And although their suffering and mistreatments were by the hands of men, Paul reminds the Ephesian church that the Christian struggle goes beyond flesh and blood. The hassles that we experience is beyond human hassle and beyond human hands. If, if all we see in all of our troubles in this world as believers, all we see are faces of human beings, then we lose, we've lost track of the big picture, have we not? We've become short-sighted. And Paul underscores this in Ephesians. And I'm going to read a portion here. You're familiar with it, I'm sure. But Ephesians chapter 6, before he describes the, the, the armor of God, he says in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. We must stand firm in adversity. We must stand firm in faith. We must remain aware of spiritual warfare. Life in this fallen world is more than what just appears to our human physical eyes. Life in this fallen world is more than what appears in our television screens and on our laptops and on our smartphones. Our struggle, as we just read, is not against flesh and blood primarily. And that's a lifelong lesson. It is for me to learn over and over and over and over. No, the struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, powers, world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And we must take this seriously. We must remain aware of spiritual warfare. In verse 8, Peter writes in chapter 5, Be of sober spirit. He doesn't say somber. We don't have to go around like we've been weaned on dill pickles, no. We're not to be somber necessarily, but sober, rational, not foolish. Peter has already used that expression about, about being sober. Chapter 1 and verse 13, Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober. There it is. Keep sober in spirit. Now look at this. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's easy to read, isn't it? But it's easy to lose focus, is it not? He goes on to say, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourself in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy, God says. Yeah, this world system is run by the God of this world. Jesus three times refers to him as the ruler of this world. And so chapter 5, verse 8 again says, we must be sober. And then he says, be on the alert. 
Years ago, I saw a little bumper sticker, <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> I'm kind of easily entertained. <laughs> so the bumper sticker <laughs> said, said, be aware. Sorry, it didn't say that. It says, be alert. And then it said, America needs more alerts. <laughs> well, you know, that's it. <laughs> That's silly, of course, of course. But this isn't silly. I say that only the contrast. This certainly isn't silly. Be on the alert. Be vigilant. The word there is gregorao. That's where we get the word Gregory. If you know somebody with a name Gregor, Gregory, that's the word here. Gregory is, a, is the watchful one. That's what his name means. But Christians in conflict must be on the alert. Jesus said, watch and pray. Lest you enter into temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Yeah. We must be sober and watchful because we have an adversary who is vicious and relentless. And again, we sang that song. I've asked Samuel, Pastor Samuel, to, to, to lead. I appreciate singing A Mighty Fortress is Our God, written by Martin Luther, the great reformer. I grew up Lutheran in Minnesota. <laughs> all the other Swedes there, you know. And, and uh, we, you know, we thought the gospel writers were Matthew, Mark, Luther, and John. You know, we didn't, we didn't know. Anyway, you know about the incredible warfare that he faced as a reformer back in, in 1529. Again, he wrote, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. We're no match. In Christ we stand firm against the enemy, but only in Christ in his power. We are no match for the wiles and the power of Satan. He is cunning and he is cruel. Verse five, uh, Chapter 5, verse 8 says, He prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to de- devour. Again, Luther says his craft and power are great. Luther himself said he felt the devil so close to him sometimes he was as close as his skin, Luther said. And one time he, he felt so hassled by the enemy that he picked up his inkwell. Some of us remember inkwells. He picked it up and threw it at the devil, who of course was invisible. He threw it at the devil and there was a stain on his office for years to come. Yeah. And, and as we think about his, his power, but I think sometimes his craft and his cunning undoes us more than his power. I'm not minimizing his power, but, but you know, he can slip in the side door and, and he's called a deceiver, certainly. And in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul addresses this when Paul says to that church that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He masquerades. He's the prince of darkness. But he masquerades as a an angel of light, so we can all be duped and follow the wrong voices and follow the wrong teaching. Certainly. Yeah. I, I heard a preacher a few years ago say, say that the, that uh, Satan is an, is an angel of light. And I knew that was a slip of the tongue. I know he didn't believe that. And no, he's not an angel of light. But let's not forget that he disguises himself. He's cunning. He's crafty. And, and, uh, Earlier in that chapter, in, in that book, Second Corinthians, he, Paul makes reference to, he says, we are not ignorant of Satan's schemes. Now today, we're to focus on Jesus, fix your eyes on him and tell everyone who we see. We're to fix our eyes on Jesus, absolutely. 
we're not, I'm not the preacher that sees a demon and a, and, a, and a devil behind every bush. But on the other hand, we are to be aware of spiritual warfare. And Paul says, we are not ignorant of his schemes as he disguises himself as an angel of light. And when he says we are not unaware of his schemes, you know what he was talking about? He was talking about unforgiveness in the church, in Corinth. See, we can make this uh, theologically highfalutin and so on and not realize it gets right down to shoe leather. He said, we're not unaware of his schemes. And this church had, had addressed a sinning brother in 1 Corinthians and, and, and uh, evidently he had repented and they, weren't, they wouldn't forgive him. And, and Paul says, be careful. Be careful, we're not ignorant of Satan's schemes. In Ephesians he says, put away anger. Don't let Satan get a foothold. Anger, anger, he'll get a foothold. But unforgiveness as well. So I just... Just want us to ponder that for a little bit and think through about forgiveness and unforgiveness in our own life, in our own relationships. Are we a grudge carrier? Do we tend to remember offenses against us? I have found that the longer I carry a grudge, the heavier it gets. (laughs) Give it up. Give it up, I tell myself. Yeah. Yeah, we will be ignorant and undiscerning if we are not sober and on the alert, if we don't resist the devil, if we're not firm in our faith, because we have an active adversary who seeks to distract, to deceive, even to destroy. If he could, he would destroy us physically. If he can't destroy us physically, he'll, he'll try to destroy us spiritually or, or, or emotionally, morally. He'll destroy our testimony, entice us to sin so that we really lose all credibility with those with whom we're supposed to declare the gospel. His names describe him here, adversary. That's, that's a, a legal term of, a, of an opponent, a hostile opponent. He's called a diabolos, your devil. Yeah, a malicious enemy who slanders, who cu- accuses and maligns. And again, it says he prowls about like a roaring lion, like a predator of the night. Remember, he's the prince of darkness. Now, in this context, Peter uses some very painful and deliberate imagery uh, by comparing the devil to a roaring lion. The people of his day knew that Nero at times would sew Christians into bags, like a burlap bag. And then he would sew them up tightly and throw them into the arena, into the Colosseum, where they would be devoured by animals. And some, of course, were lions. What a, what a painful imagery that was. Peter's just simply desiring to make this very real for them. And then in chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. This sadistic man, Nero, would also encase Christians in wax, put a wick on top of their head and light them and set them in his banquets and his gardens as human candles. And he got great glee out of that, evidently. What a sadistic, sort of sadistic man. Of course, he was just, Nero was just inspired and energized by the enemy, 
by Satan, by our adversary. So suffering was real for those to whom Peter was writing. But you know, God uses trials and suffering to purify his people. Paul writes to Titus and says that he is purifying for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So suffering purifies. That's God's intention. And and back in, as, as he begins the, the epistle, in verse 6 he says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found the result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God uses suffering to purify. It doesn't mean we need to jump up and click our heels when we, when we suffer, especially suffering from, from the enemy in a more tangible way through some of his emissaries, some of his people who make life miserable for us. I'm not saying we have to jump up and down and click our heels, but we need to realize that God is at work. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And he is at work. And as I said, I think last time, God is, God is greater than our griefs and he's bigger than our beefs. We need to see him at work. And it was Spurgeon who said this. The great preacher Spurgeon. He said, suffering is better than sinning. There is more evil in a drop of sin than in an ocean of affliction. And then he said, better to burn for Christ than to turn from Christ. Amen. Amen. Let me read this again from Spurgeon. Suffering is better than sinning. There is more evil in a drop of sin than in an ocean of affliction. Better to burn for Christ than to turn from Christ. End quote. Yes, spiritual warfare is real and God again uses vivid language to alert us and to remind us and to shake us out of our lethargy, out of our slumber. And we must remember that greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. We are victors and not just victims. But we must remain aware of spiritual warfare. Secondly, we must resist the devil and desist from pity parties. Chapter 5, verse 9. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. The posture of the Christian is to resist and to stand. We never try to, to, to um, run from him or, or engage in hand-to-hand combat or attack or try to outwit him. No, we're to defend rather than attack. We are to resist him firm in faith, chapter 5, verse 9. And sometimes I wonder if I, if I never meet the adversary head on. I wonder if it's because I'm going the same direction as he is. Just, just go and do whatever the world does and not even opposing what he is doing. We should, we should experience some resistance, certainly from the world. James chapter 4 he uses similar language, James does, when he says, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, he is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then he says, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Yes, he will. He must. He must flee. We come in the name, resist him in the name of Jesus Christ, on his authority, by his blood. He must. He must flee. 
Luther, we sang earlier, Luther said, a little word will fell him. <laughs> well, it's the word of Jesus Christ. We're standing in, in his authority, certainly. We are to resist the devil and he will flee because he must flee. The believer belongs to Jesus and Jesus has defeated Satan when he went to the cross and he rose from the dead. And we stand on the, on the merit of Jesus who paid the price that we owed but could not pay. He bought us out of the marketplace of sin. And the price that he paid, of course, we know is his own precious blood. And so he has bought us with a price. We are not our own if we understand what Scripture teaches. When temptation knocks, we just send Jesus to the door. We don't try to challenge. When temptation comes, we don't try to do it in the power of the flesh. No, we, we go and stand against it in the name of the Lord Jesus. The power of the Lord Jesus. We, we resist the devil and rely on Jesus, our Savior, our mediator, who lives to make intercession for us. That's what Hebrews tells us. That's just amazing to me. That there's not a moment that Jesus doesn't think about me and pray for me. And you go, how can that be? Well, he's God, you know, he can, he can do that. But sometimes if we're not careful, our Christianity isn't past, it's the past tense. We made a decision years ago. We're kind of trying to, to, to keep, keep on keeping on here. But we need to realize that it's in the present tense and will, it, it's future as well. But he lives to make intercession for his own. Again, Martin Luther wrote, Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Just ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name from age to age the same. And he must win the battle in our lives day by day. There is no winning for us if Jesus isn't the winner for us moment by moment. And of course, he's already won by conquering sin, death, and the grave. And he ultimately will win when he throws the, the Satan, the devil, into the, into the lake of fire, according to the book of the Revelation. And he wins every day in our lives as we're strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. As we stand firm, resist the devil, and desist from pity parties. And you go, where do you find that pity party thing? Well, look at it again. Read chapter 5, verse 9. But resist him, firm in your faith. Look at this now. Knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by a brethren who are in the world. We're not in this alone. We don't just suck our spiritual thumbs and say, oh, poor, poor me. I'm the only one going through difficult things. No, God's people must remember that we're not alone in our suffering. We're not alone being marginalized, being maligned. We're not the only ones who who are or might be mistreated. And so we must not turn inward and feel sorry for ourselves and, and develop a martyr complex or a, a persecution <laughs> complex. <laughs> it's not funny, but I find myself there too often, I'm afraid. And say, I don't like this. I don't like being marginalized. I don't like getting a sidelong look from people <laughs> who don't know the Savior. Yeah, we are, but we're not to be whiners. Daily throwing pity parties for ourselves. Someone has said, you know, that the world's smallest package is someone all wrapped up in himself. Are all wrapped up in herself. Yeah, we can identify with that. In fact, I ran across a poem. I don't know who wrote it. Again, it was probably that anonymous fellow, that Greek scholar named Anonymous. I don't know who it was. And I give him credit for it. But I, I read this, reflect on it every so often. Maybe you don't need it. Yes, you do. But, but I certainly do. I know I do. And, it's, and it goes like this. 
I've asked the Lord to take from me my super sensitivity that robs the soul of joy and peace and causes fellowship to cease. The things that people do and say to foster hurt along the way. I trust that by His Spirit, sweet, I may these very people meet and show them that His love and His power in me has won another victory. The dart which carelessly they threw much closer to the Savior drew this heart, inclined to feel the pain of idle words that they spoke in vain. It asked Him why it hurt so much when they upon my life should touch. Then quickly He revealed to me my super sensitivity. Just leave it here, he seemed to say. The victory is yours today. Remember that each idle word my listening ear has also heard, Jesus says. Before you brought that hurt to me, my eyes, the one who spoke, could see. The victory is yours today if you will put that hurt away, remembering that love will grow if you will only show it. So I've asked the Lord to take from me my super sensitivity. End quote. We need to think about that today. No whining, no pity parties that rob the soul of joy and peace and causes fellowship to cease. Linda and I have a friend, he's with the Lord now, but years ago he was walking close to his home with his grandsons, a couple of toddlers, and as they came to the park, the kids, the boys saw his sign, the name of the park, and the little, one little one says, Grandpa, what's, what's, what's that say? What's that sign say? And the grandpa said, that sign says, no whining in the park. <laughs> and I thought of that over and over and over, because that was a pretty good comeback there. But even for us today, we may not be in a park necessarily, but no whining. We need to know that the others are suffering as well. That's what Peter says right here. Chapter 4, verse verse 13 will say, But to the degree, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice in exaltation. To exalt means to to jump up and click your heels. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. What a great privilege it is for us to know Jesus as our Savior and walk and talk with him along life's narrow way. And what a privilege it is for us to suffer for him who suffered for us. And this same Peter in the book of Acts, remember, he, he, he said, we must obey God rather than men. And sure enough, he and his friends got flogged. I don't think it felt very good. And after they were, they were flogged, the, Dr. Luke writes, after they'd been flogged, they went on their way rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And then they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Isn't that what we want to be about? Yes, we have conflicts. Yes, we have an adversary. But we just keep right on, keep right on, proclaiming the gospel of Christ, who, that gospel that transforms lives. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul said, for it is the power of God and the salvation to those who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, for the just shall live by faith, as he quotes from Habakkuk. It is the gospel that that transforms lives. And may I say this carefully? We, we need a testimony. We should share how Christ worked in our lives. Absolutely. But it's not our testimony that has power. 
I've heard some testimonies that are simply boastimonies. It's all about them. It's all about them. There's no reference to sin, no reference to being lost, no reference to the blood of Christ, nothing. No, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul said, for it. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. I know we know that, dear friends, but I need to be reminded as well. Yeah, we are to remain aware of spiritual warfare. We are to to resist the devil and desist from pity parties. And then last of all, we need to remember God's mighty hand can make us stand. We're in First Peter chapter 5, and we look at verse 6. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, there it is, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you. And in verse 12 it says, This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Our posture is to stand on the merits of Christ Jesus and to resist the wiles of the adversary, the devil. And our attitude is to humble ourselves under his mighty hand. He is mighty, we are not. He is merciful and he cares for us. But I believe that pride Pride is that mother hen that hatches all other evils, I believe. And pride, it's that pride independent spirit that keeps us from experiencing his might and his mercy. Chapter 5, verse 5 says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And the command there says, all of you, all of you clothe yourselves with humility. And then as if they didn't hear that, verse 6, he says, humble yourselves. Where we are impotent in spiritual warfare if we don't humble ourselves before the one who is mighty and merciful on our behalf. God cares for us. He knows our anxieties. He knows about our suffering. And he is superintending it all. And he lets us suffer. Look at verse 10. And after you've suffered for a little while, it says. He knows we're suffering. After we've suffered for a little while, he himself will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. Why? Because he cares for us. Because he is sanctifying us. Yeah, and again, you notice that God knows about our sufferings and he's letting them happen in his sovereign rule. And it it thrills my heart to know that while our enemy is running us from pillar to post, desiring to trip us up and tempt us, the God of all grace and might rules and overrules. You see, suffering doesn't exclude uh, grace. No, no. It's an evidence of God's grace. He himself perfects, confirms, strengthens, and establishes his own. And again, while the devil seeks to undo us, the God of all grace stifles his wily ways. And by using any suffering and temptation to, to confirm and strengthen us in our faith, And that's why we believe James 1, where it says, Consider it all joy when you encounter various uh, trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. God is at work, and let endurance have its perfect result, and you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God sanctifies his people through suffering. And when our adversary tries to fracture us, God uses suffering to restore and perfect and bring wholeness. That word for perfect means a physician setting a bone. When our adversary desires to frazzle us, God uses it to establish us and to make us stable emotionally, no matter how we may feel. 
when our enemy tries to intimidate us and weaken our resolve, God uses this suffering to strengthen us and to make us sturdy. And when the devil attempts to unsettle us, our foundation, our spiritual footing, God overrules this attack and, and establishes even us to be even more solidly for our foundation in him. He makes us steadfast, immovable. There we go. That's 1 Corinthians 15. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our work is not in vain. Yes, God rules and overrules. And I would simply ask, are we cooperating? Are we cooperating with God as he uses suffering and, and unsettling experiences to settle us and to strengthen us for his glory, his glory to put him on display? Are, are we humbling ourselves under his mighty hand before we cast our cares upon him? I think many people know chapter 5, verse 7. They know the cast their cares upon Jesus. And we need to. We should, Absolutely. But I think there are many of God's people who have forgotten. Before it says you cast your cares upon him, it says humble yourself before his mighty hand. If we don't humble ourselves before his mighty hand, we may forget that he has a mighty hand. We're to humble ourselves. He will exalt us in due time and then we cast our cares upon him absolutely because he cares for us. And then I would ask again, do you, do you even belong to him? Are you born again? If you received him as your Savior, if you repented from your sin, especially the sin of thinking you can get to heaven without Jesus, getting there by your own works. No, that doesn't work. Only Jesus can wash away sin. Only Jesus can forgive sin. Peter writes right here that, that Jesus died for sin, once for all the just for the unjust, that he might bring us and, re- and reconcile us to himself. And so, would you just quietly, in the, in the quietness of your own heart, surrender to him today for his for forgiveness of your sin. In the quietness of your heart, he will even hear you there, and, and, uh, and I trust that you will come to terms with whether you belong to him or not. Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I'll give you rest, and you will find rest. But then he says, for my yoke is easy. Is that the way you perceive the Christian life? My yoke is easy. He said that. And my load is light. If we're not careful, we can see the Christian life as something ominous and depressing and we just want to give up. Well, there are a lot of things that are depressing living in this fallen world, of course. But fix our eyes on Jesus. He said his yoke is easy. His load is light. If he's forgiven our sins, if our sins are forgiven, we're bound for heaven. The best is yet to come. What a reason to rejoice. A few weeks ago, I believe it was, a month ago, a few months ago, that I preached on in Puyallup. Linda and I came from Bellingham early in the morning again. We got to the church, it was a nine o'clock service, and it was really quiet, beautiful day, really quiet, pulled in, nobody around, very quiet, beautiful day. And as I got out of the car to walk to the church building, I heard a trumpet Start, start playing. I thought, oh, the Lord is coming. Hallelujah. <laughs> and somebody was out. I couldn't see him. But in the stillness of that morning, he, was, he started to play, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that washes white as snow. No other fountain I know. 
nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, how wonderful to hear that, even though the people couldn't hear the words. I knew the words. How glorious. And so in Christ Jesus, we are victors, not victims. And in our suffering for his name, let's be reminded that after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Bow one more time with you this morning. Gracious Father, we know again this, this, this hour will never be repeated. And you've met us here today through your word by your spirit. Thank you for assembling your saints. What a privilege to be, be part of your body, your glorious body. But Father, again, give us ears to hear not, not my message, but your word today. Give us hearts to respond in joyful obedience. And Father, you've told us to be your ambassadors. What a privilege. Help us to be faithful to proclaim the good news to any and everybody. And then, Father, you've said that there's a crown for those who look for, long for, and love the appearing of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Help us. Help us to look for and long for him to come or for us to meet you face to face when you choose to take us home. How glorious it is to know that we can know that we belong to you. And we come because of Jesus, your Son. Amen.